Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... We found over 20 greater gliders in their habitat trees, den trees, that we captured footage of their, them coming out of the hollows right by the side of the track of the logging tracks that they've made. New South Wales forest protectors have stopped logging operations in Sticks River State Forest to protect endangered greater gliders and their habitat. Also, the big challenge is in light of charities on the ground and in country areas. It's just much more difficult to, to serve people with people having to get a bus for 90, 100 k to reach a local charity. A new report has revealed most Australians don't know where to get help when facing food insecurity. And later today... You've got to look at the source. So you're always looking for what's causing the problem. You solve the problem at its causal factor before you start repairing the land. The new community project in Brisbane, helping landholders in the Leslie Harrison Dam catchment area improve their property's water quality. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, new research from Macquarie University has found a link between hot weather and increased rates of domestic violence. And with a long, hot summer ahead of us, I wanted to find out more. As extreme heatwaves persist across large parts of Australia, health experts are warning about the effects of prolonged exposure to heat, with the New South Wales Ambulance Service recently reporting an expected 10% rise in the number of triple zero calls. But what about the less direct impacts of heatwaves and other extreme weather events? Researchers from Macquarie University found violence also increases in warmer weather, with heat affecting the rates of domestic violence more than any other type of violent crime. We sort of looked at three main types of violent crime. The first was assault from a domestic um, relationship, maybe that is your domestic partner or in an intimate family setting. Then we looked at non-domestic crime. So they are often between peers or strangers. And then we looked at sexual assaults as well. So, And we also decided to look at crimes by indoors or outdoors. Did these crimes occur outside? So that might be a park or street or footpath or inside the house. And of course, we're thinking about temperature. So do we expect to see less relationships between temperature and aggression indoors, where potentially there is access to air conditioning or shade, and actually surprisingly found that's not the case. Dr Heather Stevens is an environmental scientist and researcher at Macquarie University. Her and her research team analysed almost a million reported incidents of domestic, non-domestic and sexual assaults over a 13-year period. Dr Stevens said the relationship between violence and heat was consistent across nearly all local government areas examined in New South Wales. And I think that also tells an interesting story about potentially, you know, we, we think maybe about acclimatisation. It, this affects everybody. So it is occurring across um, the state, regardless of whether you are a coastal LGA or you are someone that is, you know, in the um, inland areas that experience much more extreme temperature. So it's certainly happening across a broad range of geographical areas. The reasons, says Dr Stevens, are complex. Most Australians are familiar with the uncomfortable, often irritating effects of hot weather. 
But Dr Stevens says the behaviours associated with hot days, like drinking alcohol, can also lead to increased aggression. To feel sleepless, lethargic. So there is a real physical reaction and I think people really instinctively know that feeling who hasn't been frustrated and hot and then snapped at someone. But more so it's the behaviours that we change in hot weather. So as I said before, people might cancel outdoor sports. Outdoor workers might go home. We might um, socialise more. We might go and do behaviours that are different. And so I think that the things that we're seeing in our increases in violence are also connected to lots of behavioural and social changes, which are much harder to quantify. We have to sort of theorise about them. We can't actually always point to a particular thing. But there's all these different ways that we change our behaviour, which I think has a bigger impact on um, the way that crime statistics change over temperature than just that feeling of hot and bothered. And retreating inside might mean spending more time in close quarters with a perpetrator. And what we saw inside was that um, domestic, the non-domestic violence also continued to increase, but domestic violence had a huge increase. There was much more domestic violence inside than non-domestic, and the trends were, were really quite striking. And certainly we know that there's a lot of stresses that um, can be correlated or associated with domestic violence. And yes, being behind closed doors, having no potential witnesses to intervene or to even um, report the incident... And then, of course, also that um, social stresses of just being in a smaller space and not having access to be able to potentially get away um, from social situations that are quite stressful. Dr Stevens also says these contributing factors have a greater effect on disadvantaged and low socioeconomic communities. And we know that there is a really big correlation between socio-demographics and exposure to heat. So low socio-demographic areas are often more exposed to heat because they may not have air conditioning or if they do have it, it's really expensive to, to run it. They might not have solar panels or you know, insulation or ways to make their house more affordable and cool. They might not have access to a private vehicle, so they're walking to public transport or they might be doing outdoor work. So we know that there's a correlation between socio-demographics and exposure to heat. And we also know that there is a correlation, although domestic violence affects all different um, populations across across Australia. We do know that there are some of the stresses that are associated with domestic violence also happen in lower socio-demographic areas. As heat waves and other climate-related events are set to become more frequent and severe, Dr Stevens says that findings like this might improve the way we view and mitigate climate change in Australia. But from a climate perspective, which is where I come to this conversation from, certainly I'm really passionate about having um, a really rapid transition to um, decarbonisation to stop climate change occurring because you can't talk about heatwaves these days without making that link that it's also related to climate change. We know that we're going to experience more frequent, hotter, longer, more severe heatwaves in a warming world and this obviously is going to put additional stress on these associations between um, violence and temperature. Um, My my little catchphrase is that if you are not already feeling angry that climate change is occurring, the weather may very well make you. That was Macquarie University researcher Dr Heather Stevens ending that report. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program.
Northeast New South Wales forest protectors have stopped logging operations in Styx River State Forest, northeast of Armadale, to protect endangered greater gliders and their habitat. The greater gliders have been filmed entering their dens with a total of at least nine gliders recorded, thanks to citizen scientists. The wise contributor from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, has the story. The Environmental Protection Agency of New South Wales has issued stop work orders in two forests in southern New South Wales recently where they were shown to have greater glider den trees which need a 50 metre protection buffer. Community members are calling on the EPA to issue a stop work order in Styx River State Forest. I'm Luca Lamont and I'm 24 years old and I am in Styx River State Forest. I have the pleasure to be part of a citizen science team that is surveying greater gliders and finding the breaches of forestry. We found over 20 greater gliders in their habitat trees, den trees, that um, we captured footage of their, them coming out of the hollows right by the side of the track of the logging tracks that they've made. So they're breaching their, their um, 50 metre zone for um, having greater gliders in a habitat tree. They're logging right on their doorstep. Two stop work orders have been issued in the southeast forests uh, because of greater gliders shown to be there in their den trees. What are you hoping will happen in Styx River State Forest? Yeah, well, hopefully after the breach report that we've just sent out, EPA will arrive and tell forestry to stop work and for the next 40 days so that they reassess all their breaches that they've made and hopefully it's longer than, than 40 days. What's preventing uh, the forestry from carrying on logging in that area right now? So the group of citizen science also um, captured the three machines that they were using and have a um, activist, a passionate activist that's sitting up 25, 30 metres up in the tree and not coming down until they, until EPA arrives. I'm speaking to Dylan Pugh, the president of the Northeast Forest Alliance. Uh, Dylan, in Styx River State Forest, there are actors uh, in trees holding the logging at bay while they protect a glider habitat. Can you give us a bit of a background on how we've come to this point? Certainly. The logging rules, what they call the CIFOA, requires that the Forestry Corporation look for and identify den trees of greater gliders and yellow belly gliders and protect 50 metres around them. And this has been a requirement for decades, yet the forestry has never done it. So we found in northeast New South Wales that they're just not looking for greater gliders, let alone their den trees or yellow belly gliders. They're just ignoring the law. The EPA just got to stop work. As the precedent is for um, Talaganda and Flat Rock, they've got to stop work while there's a proper assessment done for greater glider den trees. You've got to stop logging your public native forest, really. I mean, it's not just the grey glider, it's not just the yellow belly glider. We have similar issues with koalas where they're going in and logging most of the koala feed trees across a whole range of species. They can't go on logging their habitat. Uh, those species are in uh, dire straits, they're endangered, that's in danger of extinction, and forests go on destroying their homes. Okay, I'm with Sue Higginson. So, Sue, could you give us a potted summary of what was the outcome from the actions this week in Styx River for greater gliders? Yeah, certainly. So what we know is the EPA were quick to respond, which I think there was all-round applause around. EPA got on side. 
But then what followed was really, really quite surprising and caused for quite some alarm. And that is, we understand EPA has been very quiet in the public arena and instead what we've seen is a forestry corporation response. And remember EPA is the regulator here. EPA went in with a strong case that forestry corporation had broken the environmental protection laws but what we've seen come out of it is a voluntary undertaking by Forestry Corporation to stand down its work crews and for Forestry Corporation to undertake some more ecological greater glider assessment survey work. The reason this is quite alarming is we need to understand why there is an inconsistency of regulatory response from the EPA. Inconsistencies of response to regulation is not good practice. It leads with just cause to suspicion. It is often what we see when we see influence coming from the wrong places. And in fact, history has shown when you have inconsistent responses, sometimes there has been corruption at the bottom of those inconsistent responses. New South Wales Legislative Council member Sue Higginson there, speaking with River FM's Sean O'Shaughnessy. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A new report has revealed most Australians don't know where to get help when facing food insecurity. Food Bank Australia's latest annual hunger report shows more than three and a half million Australian households experienced moderate to severe levels of food insecurity this year. Cost of living was rated the most significant issue Australians were concerned about, followed by the economy and healthcare. To learn more, National Radio News reporter Amy O'Halloran spoke to Ian Lang, General Manager of Partnerships at Food Bank Australia. The, the mental health impact is, is really profound. One of the main reasons why people don't reach out for food relief is they're embarrassed and they're ashamed of the stigma of, if you like, needing a handout. And that's something that we really want people to be more comfortable with. But yes, certainly if you're worried about getting food on the table, if you're worried about looking after your family, when you're hungry, it does all kinds of things to your physical being. Uh, And of course, um, that includes your brain. So it's hard to perform, it's hard to be good at work, it's hard to be good in school, and it's a difficult experience for, for people to go through. So yeah, having a healthy, nutritious diet, we all know of the, the vital importance of it. And it's particularly profound for, for children. We see some horrific research come through about the long-term impacts on children's lives when they experience food insecurity at a younger age. In rural and regional Australia, people are more likely, sadly, to be, to be food insecure than, than metro Australia. That's about a third more likely. Um, and partly that's a challenge around um, access uh, in terms of we don't necessarily have the same degree of coverage of the population. 
one in 10 households weren't even aware of where to find food relief. And do you think that's because there's not much in regional and rural areas? Why is there a lack of knowledge on where to find these services? Yeah, great question. We've been doing a piece on our website, which if if anyone who's listening wants to jump on, go to foodbank.org.au, there's a function there called Find Food. That then connects to a system where we can identify a charity in your area who are able to provide a meal service. And for people in, in WA and SA, we have a whole host of, of both fixed and mobile food hubs that we can serve people from. Um, but yeah, the big challenge is in light of charities on the ground in, in country areas, it's just much more difficult to, to serve people. And we, we hear of you know people having to get a bus for 90, 100 k to reach a local charity. And that bus might only go on certain days a week. So it's a really difficult um, logistical challenge. Major supermarkets are now being accused of price gorging and profiting from the cost of living. Now, do you support this sentiment and do you think the high prices is the main reason why people are struggling to put food on the table? Higher prices are one of several reasons why people are struggling to put food on the table. We've seen an explosion in, in I guess, the kind of cost base, if you like, of, of all aspects of the household budget over the last 18 months. So, yes, food prices are up, fuel prices are up rents are up, people on mortgages are, of course, having to just lower higher interest rates as well. So when you combine that whole range of factors together, you can see the difficulty of people being able to balance their, their household budget. The sad aspect in those situations is food becomes a, a variable cost, if you like. So, you know, people need to keep the car on the road to get to their job. People need to, you know, they want the very keen to keep the roof over their head, so they prioritise rent and they prioritise mortgage repayments ahead of food. And, and then we get to this you know, really challenging situation where people are either trading down and they're not buying into a kind of healthy, nutritious set of groceries at the supermarket. They're, they're going for, you know, ready noodles and pasta and, and, and lots of, you know, cheap carbohydrates, if you like. What are some things that people are sacrificing in order to save for food? Are they skipping some real essential stuff, like especially air conditioning in this hot heat? Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've heard uh, lots of anecdotal stuff around what people are doing to, to make ends meet. So, yes, absolutely. Try to focus on reducing your, your bills. So, you know, using less water in the showers, turning the aircon off. And, you know, what we see in terms of food is people, you know, cutting out, you know, things like meat other sources of protein, fish, and also fruit and veg from their diet, which is um, clearly not ideal. So, yeah, there's a lot of shopper behavior change patterns going through. And, you know, the challenge we have is, you know, if we look at food insecurity as a whole, you know, more than half of people who are experiencing hunger in their lives are not actually getting the help that they need. So we're looking after, you know, hundreds of thousands of families around the country at the moment, equally Friends and family are supporting each other through, through a time of difficulty. But when we looked at the numbers from the, the recently issued Food Bank Hunger Report, the biggest cohort of people who are experiencing hunger at the moment are getting no help. That was Ian Lang from Food Bank Australia, ending the story by National Radio News' Amy O'Halloran. A new community project is helping landholders in Brisbane's Leslie Harrison Dam catchment area improve their property's water quality. 
the first of its kind for urban Brisbane, Upper Tingalpa Creek Care is a partnership between South East Queensland Water and Balinga Creek Catchment Coordinating Committee. The Wires' Tony Pankaluik spoke with Wayne Cameron, catchment manager at B4C, about key threats to the area's water quality and what the program plans to deliver for residents. Let's start off with the first issue, and that's weeds. What kind of species of weeds are in the area? The two main weeds that qualify for 100% support to the landholder, catsquill creeper and Madeira vine. Now, these are known as canopy killers. Anyone in land care or bush catchment care would know what they are, but for the general public, they're invasive exotic vines that are very hard to kill, hard to control, very fast-growing. have got tubers in the ground, which, you know, you can't just pull it out and walk away and think you've got it. Those tubers are complex, and you've got to use certain herbicides and certain methods to get them out. So they will really badly affect you riparian zones, which is your waterway vegetation. FEQ Water have identified these two weeds as really important, so they're out there with 100% funding on private land to get rid of them. What kind of technologies are used to identify the weeds? Well, we do weed mapping, so we've got a software program. It still requires you to go out there and ground truth the infestation, like you can't pick it up from space sort of thing. You go out, do your survey, that's why we've got to get onto these private lands and get approval to get onto them. Sometimes you can do it from the other side of the creek on a property you are on and you can look over and you can map it from there without going on the property. But we use the GIS points and leads our mapping program so we can actually concentrate on the big infestations using our mapping software program to identify the areas. Then we've got to go in and treat them. So when we speak of private properties, this leads us to the next issue for the project and that's horse management. What should people consider when owning a horse? And also, do they pose risks for waterways? Yeah, it's a challenge to own horses, not only in knowing how to manage them and manage the land and protect the land and what to feed them and all that, but also in time. So they're not like cattle either. They're a completely different body and digestive system. So the pasture's got to be completely different. They don't like the high-quality pastures, so they like fibre. The big amount of throughput they've got to eat a day, but for horses, they need this roughage, they need this big throughput and their bodies are tuned to having that stomach working all the time and you and me, we release a bit of acid when we pick up some food. Our body automatically puts a bit of acid into the stomach to work on it. Well, horses are different. They have acid going into that stomach all the time. So that is the big thing to consider. And a lot of horses are on inadequate pastures. The way it's laid out, the pastures, the way the pastures are treated, the way your sheds and your walkways and that and your avoid certain things with horses. We're working on co-design layouts. In other words, we don't come into a place and say, no, this is all wrong, we're going to do it this way. We go in and we talk to the owner and we say, look, you're doing this, this and this right. Two little tweaks around here and you'll get more benefits, save more time and money maybe. Or you go into a property that's really in need of help. And that way we feel that we can really do something. And some of our partners with good properties are helping us with advice on how to help these people. As we talk about the land, is there any degradations or erosions exactly Yeah, I did some early investigations. There was a part of the dam where there's a clear paddock all cleared. I think there might be electricity easement on part of it, but it's sort of just sloping down into the dam. So the water is dripping down there. It's not infiltrating with barriers of logs and vegetation to stop it, just mown grass. So it's eating back from the edge of the lake. So while there's that erosion and you go out there and you look at that and it's easy for 
someone like me with a bit of an agricultural background to know what I've got to do and what I can propose to council. They've got to agree, of course, this is on council land. The other one, the outlet, not an engineer. So we want to get the hydraulic engineer out there and talk to council. And there's no point me doing up the waterway that's eroded if it's going to reoccur and hammer it again. You've got to look at the source. So you're always looking for what's causing the problem. You solve the problem at its causal factor before you start repairing the land. Ultimately, what are the future plans of this project? Can its strategies be implemented in wider use, whether it be statewide or nationwide? As for wider in the country, well, I can speak for SEQ Water's comprehensive programs in the rural and semi-rural areas of South East Queensland. So we've got a highly effective peer-to-peer learning network worked out of that as well. So we're the latest kid on the block, but we're part of something that's really important. People come together, they're all motivated, they're learning things off each other, and we're very confident we can deliver something special out here. That was B4C catchment manager Wayne Cameron closing that report. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with great support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.